Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hej allihopa och välkomna till Russlands historia. It's Diamond with you again, and this is episode 51, Peter the Great, part 6, the conclusion of the Great Northern War. Thanks for listening in. So, after that rousing welcome, in what I'm fairly certain was perfectly pronounced and pitched Swedish, and if it's not, I'm sure that someone will let me know, let's do a quick recap. So the first seven years of the Great Northern War, which had started back in 1700, had seen the ice cool and calculating Charles XII lead his Swedish army to a series of crushing victories against Denmark, Poland, Saxony and Russia. But things hadn't totally gone in the direction that Charles had wanted them to, because by concentrating on securing victory against Poland and Saxony, he had allowed Peter to consolidate Russia's position, gain territory in Ingria and Livonia, establish a presence on the Baltic, and allowed him time to make a number of domestic reforms and improvements, calendar, money, governorship, schools, oh, and put down a couple of rebellions. This week we'll start by doing a bit of a who's who in terms of Peter's inner circle, We'll quickly go through a couple of further developments in the Baltic theatre, and then we'll finish up taking the Great Northern War through to its conclusion, which will include a look at the one theme or feature that always seems to come to Russia's aid in times of strife, the weather. OK, all set? Then let's do some history of Russia. Let's begin then by taking a trip down memory lane to those heady, carefree days back in the 1690s when the young Peter and his gang, the Jolly Company, had enjoyed life to the full, partying and mocking the established old order, 
and generally doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Back then, the Tsar had surrounded himself with a surprisingly capable bunch of loyal supporters. Some would say yes-men. There was Patrick Gordon and Franz Lefort, Peter's two key foreign aides. And then you had the two Fyodors, Golovin the Chancellor and Romodanovsky, the head of the secret police. And then finally, the statesmen, Alexander Menshikov and Boris Galitsyn. But by 1706, Gordon, Lefort and Golovin were all dead, and Boris Galitsyn had fallen out of favour again. Romodonovsky was still happily occupied as the Tsar's eyes and ears, which really just left Menshikov as the one man who was both capable and trustworthy enough, most of the time, to pull the strings on the bigger political stage. So as energetic as he was, Peter would have found it impossible to run the Russian state in wartime with just Menshikov as his right-hand man. He had the boyars and the prikazes, the ministries of course, but who and where were the new men who could be relied upon in Russia's hour of need? Well, the Tsar's new brains trust featured the cautious but reliable Boris Sheremetev in a dual role, part commander-in-chief of the army and part seasoned diplomat, although currently it was much more of the former and much less of the latter. Then we had the Admiral Fyodor Apraxin, who incidentally was the brother of Marfa Apraxina, who had been the second wife of Fyodor III, and Mikhail Golitsyn, a relative of Boris and Vasily Golitsyn, who served as a field marshal. And finally, and as had become normal, there were a group of foreign military commanders, three Scotsmen in fact, George Ogilvie and the brothers James and Alexander Bruce. But apart from Menshikov and perhaps at times Sheremetev, none of these senior players had either the charisma or the bonhomie to appeal to Peter's particular type of character, and truth be told, they were all just a little bit boring. Luckily for the Tsar, there was another person who was able to fulfil the role of soulmate, trusted confidant, and, well, so much more. Step forward, the illiterate refugee of the recent Ingrian campaign, Marta or Martha Skavronskaya. Now in her early 20s, the by all accounts stunningly beautiful Marta had experienced a rather interesting few years since she'd been evacuated along with a few thousand others by the Russian army. Her first stop on the road to Moscow, and fame and fortune, was either as the housekeeper or the mistress, no one's really sure, of Boris Sheremetev. After that, Marta moved on to become part of Alexander Menshikov's household, and the two of them became close and formed a lifelong bond, but not, we are told, in any kind of romantic way. In 1703, Peter, who had recently tired of his mistress of 12 years, Anna Mons, was introduced to Marta, and very quickly she became the Tsar's companion, and before long the two of them had become genuinely and totally inseparable. Over the next four years, Marta gave birth to three children, all of whom unfortunately died in infancy. She converted to the Orthodox Church, whereupon her name was changed to the more Russian-sounding Yekaterina, and then in 1707, the couple were married in a secret ceremony. The relationship would be the most important and successful of Peter's life. 
Yekaterina, or Catherine, was happy, honest, good-natured and full of energy, compassion and charm. She was able to soothe and placate the Tsar when he had one of his frequent temper tantrums. But, and this is important, she could also stand up to him and at the same time make him think that he was still the one in charge. Clever Catherine, but maybe at times a bit too clever. We'll see. Okay, let's leave the Tsar's clique and Catherine's cleverness there for the time being and get back to military matters because we really should circle back and tidy up what else had been going on up on the Baltic front. After the Russians had captured Narva in 1704, Charles had reluctantly realised that he couldn't keep on turning a blind eye towards the Baltic. Action needed to be taken to check Peter's momentum, otherwise the Swedes could end up gaining Poland and Saxony but losing all of Ingria and Livonia. But did the Swedish king have the necessary manpower and resources to do anything about the situation? Well, he thought he did, and so in 1705 and 1706 he decided to first blockade and then attack the then small Russian settlement of St. Petersburg. However, the Russian Tsar had his own plans, which he too thought would be successful, and in 1706 his army attacked the Swedish town and fortress of Vyborg. Unfortunately, both Charles and Peter would be disappointed. Neither's plans worked, and during 1707, things settled into an uneasy stalemate on the shores of the Baltic. So in August 1708, Charles had another go, this time in Ingria. But this further attempt to regain Swedish territory fared even worse. The entire army was forced back to the coast and had to be evacuated by sea. And so the king decided that enough was enough. And Peter, guessing that this was the case, was able to move a large part of his army down to the Ukraine in the south. And back then, of course, we did refer to it as the Ukraine. But why did the Tsar need to redeploy his forces? What was going on? Well, as you've probably guessed, because... I've already alluded to it. After finally finishing off Augustus and wrapping things up in Saxony during the year 1707, Charles XII's main army, consisting of around 45,000 of the best soldiers in Europe, was in January 1708 on the move eastwards. And Peter needed to quickly bolster his defences for what was going to be the deciding phase of the entire Great Northern War, the Swedish invasion of Russia. Charles's aim was to get the Russian army involved in a large, single, defining set-piece battle. But for two main reasons, this didn't happen. Firstly, because Peter realised the risks involved. His army might be destroyed, his recent territorial acquisitions might be lost, and his regime could be in potential peril. And then secondly, even if the Tsar had wanted to engage, he wasn't entirely sure where Charles was headed. And as the year went on, neither really was the Swedish king. Moscow was Charles's initial target, but Peter had invoked a scorched earth policy along the central and northern parts of the border between Russia and the Commonwealth. Whereas to the south stood the Ukraine, with its ready supply of grain and other crops which Charles could use to provision his troops. The only problem with heading south was that the road to Moscow would be longer both in terms of distance and time, 
and this area was defended by the one remaining Russian ally, the hetman of the Ukrainian Cossacks, Ivan Mazepa. Never one to dally over a decision, in September 1708, Charles gave the order to move into the Ukraine, and at the same time ordered his general in Livonia, Adam Leuvenhaupt, to bring a further 10,000 troops, plus food and supplies, for the main army southwards. Peter and Menshikov got wind of what was going on, however, and managed to in intercept Leuvenhaupt's army. And in a major battle at Lesnaya, in modern-day Belarus, caused significant damage to the Swedish forces, with the result that by October, Charles had gained only 5,000 or so reinforcements, but more importantly, no supplies to feed either them or his main army. Luckily for the Swedes, there was some good news. Charles's envoys had persuaded the wily Ivan Mazepa to switch sides, by offering him the promise of an independent Ukraine as soon as the war had been won. And just as winter set in, the Cossacks were able to deliver some of the reinforcements and supplies that Charles so urgently needed, with a promise that more men were on their way. Peter was furious, but there was little he could do. And both sides went into their winter quarters, but what nobody knew then was that the winter of 1708 and 1709 would be one of the severest ever recorded. Throughout its long history, Russia, or Russia, has suffered five major invasions of its territory. One from the east by the Mongols back in the 13th century, and four from the west by Poland back in the time of Troubles, the Swedes in 1709, France in 1812, and Nazi Germany in 1941. The first two were successful, or in the case of the Poles, partially successful, and to a large extent were not impacted by the weather. And even if they had been, I doubt it would have stopped the Mongols. But Charles XII, Napoleon, and Hitler would all struggle because of their own hubris, overextended supply lines, and the Russian winter. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Winter of 1708-1709 started off fairly normally across the continent. Milder in the west, colder in the east, and the usual mixture of rain, fog, frost, snow and wind. But in early January, bang, the temperatures suddenly plummeted from Scotland to Spain and from France to Poland 
and out in the east a bone-numbing cold developed and seeped into the very soul of the land. The Russians, of course, had seen all of this before, or thought that they had, and to a degree they were prepared. But as the cold spell deepened, even they began to struggle. For Charles's soldiers, though, it was a different story. The majority would have come from the relatively warmer central and southern parts of Sweden, northern Germany, and the Baltic states, and this kind of intense, prolonged cold would have been a whole new experience. And Peter was determined to make their conditions even worse. Throughout the winter, bands of Russians and loyal Cossacks constantly harried the frozen and poorly supplied Swedes, ensuring that their days and nights were to become a frozen living hell. Of the 50,000 Swedish troops in the Ukraine at the beginning of December, grimly and incredibly, by the end of March, only half that number were still alive. Robert Massey's Peter the Great gives us a, just a glimpse of what the winter of 1709 was like. So OK, it's time for what I hope is a sombre and respectful quotation voice. And just for context here, Massey and at the end of the quote, a Swedish soldier, are telling us about an attempt to relieve a garrison that was thought to be under Russian attack, but actually wasn't. The Swedes struggled forward. Uh, here Massey is referring to the relief party. Arriving at the garrison in the evening, hoping to find shelter and warmth, but they found that the only entrance to the town was a single narrow gate, which soon was jammed and blocked by a mass of men, horses and wagons. Most of the Swedes had to spend one night and some two or three nights camped outside the town in the open air. The suffering was extreme. Sentries froze to death at their posts. Frostbite furtively stole noses, ears, fingers and toes. Sledge loads of frostbitten men and long lines of wagons, some of whose passengers were already dead, crawled slowly through the narrow gate into the town. And the Swedish soldier goes on to say, The cold was beyond description, some 100 men of the regiment being injured by the freezing away of their private parts, or by the loss of feet, hands and noses, besides 90 men who froze to death. In the spring of 1709 then, Charles and his army were, to put it mildly, in a bit of a bind. And the situation for the beleaguered Swedes was made worse by the fact that a relief army under the leadership of the Polish king Stanislaus failed to appear, as did a large number of the Cossacks that Mazeppa had promised. Charles was trapped. All he could do now was to try and find a suitably large, well-provisioned settlement and use that as a base to recuperate, take stock, and hopefully lure Peter into that decisive battle that would settle things once and for all. And so he looked at a map and quickly decided that the nearby town of Poltava would suit his needs. By May, Charles had captured Poltava, and his spies had then informed him that the Russians had taken the bait. And sure enough, by June, 
Peter with Catherine and Menshikov and Sheremetev and an army of around 40,000 had set up camp about half a mile away from Charles and his 25,000 men. And then came one of those cruel twists of fate. In late June, Charles rode out to observe the Russian positions. However, as the king and his men had wheeled around for the short ride back to Poltava, a Russian sniper took aim and managed to send a musket ball into Charles's left foot. Now, because Charles had his back to the Russian line, the musket ball had smashed into his heel and then it proceeded to barrel through the entire length of his foot before exiting right near his big toe. Anyway, Charles, now in a great deal of pain, managed to keep the injury hidden during the ride back, but when he dismounted, the pain was so great that he just passed out. And just like that, in a split second, the Swedish king was incapacitated and confined to his bed, effectively knocked out of the battle before it even started. The day before the clash, Sunday the 26th of April, Charles was somehow able to get through a final council of war where it was decided that the next day the Swedes would go all in and launch a surprise, courageous and perhaps foolhardy attack at 4am the next morning. It would prove to be a risk too far. By the end of the first day the Swedish army had been completely routed. 7,000 Swedes lay dead, 3,000 had been taken prisoner and an untold number were wounded or missing. Sweden had lost the battle, and with it, the Great Northern War. Hang on a minute, Damon. Didn't you say a while back that the Great Northern War would end in 1721? Well, yes, I did. And it did. But realistically, Poltava in 1709 was the point of no return for Charles and his Swedish Empire. It was all mostly downhill from here, Whereas for Peter and Russia, things were very much, in general, on the way up. Okay, so let's spend the rest of this episode going through very quickly what did happen between 1709 and 1721. Whilst his army was surrendering to the Russians, Charles, along with a few soldiers, managed to escape southwards to Moldova, which was then in Ottoman territory. When he found out, a frustrated Peter demanded that the Turks evict the Swedish king. Sultan Ahmed III, however, wasn't the type to bow down to anyone, and he refused. So, Peter decided to force the issue and in 1710 invaded the Ottoman Empire. But this campaign was a disaster from the beginning for the Russians, basically because they were totally outnumbered by the Turkish army. Ahmed was wary, though. He knew about Peter's Azov-Sea fleet and the danger that this represented, and so in 1713 both parties decided to call it a day. As part of the Treaty of Adrianople, Ahmed had agreed to get Charles out of Moldova, where he'd set up a kind of Swedish court in exile, and at some point in 1714 the king got the message and departed for his homeland. Whilst all of this had been going on in the south to the north, Russia, with a bit of help from two new allies, Hanover and Prussia, had managed to kick the last remaining Swedish forces from the Baltic states, and then had invaded and occupied Swedish-held Finland. This occupation, which was named the Greater Roth, and which was overseen by Mikhail Golitsyn, 
lasted until 1721, and was a brutal and unforgiving time for the Finns. Thousands fled west to Sweden, while thousands more were either murdered or enslaved, and this wouldn't be the last time that Finland would suffer at the hands of its larger and increasingly more powerful neighbour. The other war that had been going on in Europe, the War of the Spanish Succession, came to an end in 1714. It ended as a draw or a tie, by the way, and this gave others, Denmark, Saxony and Great Britain, the opportunity to either gain revenge or cash in on Sweden's demise. Now back in Scandinavia, Charles's swan song was an attempted invasion of Norway, then run by the Danes. In an attempt to force Denmark to agree to an even harsher peace treaty, but this campaign came to an end in 1718 when Charles was killed at the siege of Fredrikstein. He was only 36 years old. In 1719, Sweden, which was still refusing to agree to a peace settlement with anyone, was invaded from the west by Denmark, Norway, and from the east by Russia. The end came formally with a slew of peace deals. The Swedish Hanoverian and the Swedish-Prussian Treaties of Stockholm in 1719, the Danish-Swedish Treaty of Fredericksburg in 1720, and then finally the Russian-Swedish Treaty of Neustad in 1721. The net effect of these agreements was that Sweden officially gave up the Baltic territories to Russia and most of its German territories to Hanover, Prussia and Saxony. Denmark strengthened its position in that place that I can never quite pronounce, but here goes, Schleswig-Holstein. Nah, not too bad. The days of the Swedish Empire had ended. The days of the Russian Empire were about to begin. Okay, let's leave it there for this week. Next time we'll be covering the key events that took place in Russia whilst the Great Northern War was petering out, and there's no pun intended there. The emergence of St. Petersburg, Peter's domestic affairs, and in particular his marriage to his second wife, the life of his son and heir, and Alexei's relationship with his enigmatic, energetic, ruthless and all-powerful father. Okay, until then, look after yourselves and stay safe, and I'll speak to you all soon.